Macrocast, the sound of the economic world, with Gilles Moeck, AXA Group Chief Economist. Hello, I'm Gilles Moeck, and exceptionally on this Tuesday, I'm happy to share with you my views on the economic week. The recession in the first half of 2020 is deeper than initially thought. Markets seem to focus on a rebound in the second half. Following last week's Eurogroup meeting, we remain circumspect on the relief the support package can bring to fragile member states. Policymakers need to find a balanced approach between an excessive focus on discipline and the risk to turn some form of debt monetization into a new normal. This applies to emerging markets as well. The impact of lockdowns on activity is deep and they will probably last longer than initially expected. We have revised our forecasts again and now expect GDP to contract by 4.6% in the year area in annual average in 2020. The shock to public debt trajectory is going to be massive across the board. But naturally, this will hurt even harder the most fragile member states, such as Italy, where debt could well exceed 150% of GDP this year. Given its low nominal GDP trend, this country will face daunting difficulties to stabilize its debt even after the pandemic is under control. How to defuse the debt bomb then? This brings us naturally to the deal negotiated by the Eurogroup last week. The package is organized around four main items. First, specific loans from the European Stability Mechanism, the pandemic crisis support. Those loans will be made available to member states without the macroeconomic conditions normally attached to this form of funding. But they are capped to 2% of GDP and can only be used to fund healthcare spending. Those ESM loans would cover only one-fifth of the public deficit Italy is likely to face this year. Second item, support to mitigate unemployment risk in an emergency. It's called the SURE program. This is a new initiative coming from the European Commission, offering 100 billion euros in loans to member states to help them fund unemployment benefits. This is a welcome innovation, but at 0.8% of the euro area GDP, which is also unlikely to change the overall fiscal outlook. Third, the European Investment Bank Pan-European Guarantee Fund. This would bring an additional 25 billion euros in guarantees to loans to small and medium-sized enterprises, but we would need to better understand how the EIB would actually structure this instrument. And finally, fourth, there is quite a bit of interest in, and hope for, the fourth item on this support package, the recovery fund, which would go beyond dealing with the immediate cost of the pandemic and is designed to kickstart the recovery. This might be the package component closest to a corner bond, providing sizable, properly mutualized funding in the medium term. But the Eurogroup statement was remarkably non-committal there, not putting forward any figure. The final decision will need to be made at the leader's level at a special summit on the 23rd of April. And the noises from Berlin and the possibility to go very far in that direction are not particularly encouraging. We think that central banks will have to remain even more central than usual for long. We reiterate here our preference for going via loans to businesses. We would rather see the ECB buy back the emergency loans originated by banks to corporations and restructure them, for instance by massively lengthening their amortization, than having the governments trigger the guarantee on defaulting business loans before passing this to the central bank through quantitative easing. We think the political and legal risk would be lower, while it would be a much more efficient approach to helicopter money than the usual checks to households. Supporting consumer income should not be a priority at the current juncture. Ensuring businesses survive 
without bearing for years the pandemic shock in the balance sheet is key. We note that in Noped in Le Monde last Wednesday, Banque de France Governor Villeroy de Gallo opened a crack in that door on this option. He mentioned speculative and complex to implement theories where central banks would create money on a durable basis to fund businesses. Nothing is excluded in an intellectual debate, but only a major downward risk on price stability could put these hypothetical solutions on the table. It is very guarded and conditional, but at least the option is not rejected out of hand. He is right to be guarded. While there is in our view a good case for some form of monetization in the face of the pandemic, precautions need to be taken to avoid turning the recourse to the printing press into a reflex, an ordinary tool of monetary policy. We think it is going to be important to single out the portion of the central bank's balance sheet, which may be the subject of the specific treatment in the future, for instance, via ultra-long amortization. Before the pandemic, the monetary policy debate was increasingly polarized between the supporters of modern monetary theory, who in a nutshell advocate date monetization at in almost any circumstances, and the conservatives, who wanted a return to a more traditional monetary policy practice, even in the absence of compliance with the central bank's inflation objective. A middle way needs to be found, and it's going to be politically difficult to manage. We have focused a lot recently, Macrocast, on the fate of the developed economy, and we were intrigued by a blog post at the end of March from Paul Thompson, the head of the European Department at the International Monetary Fund. And you can find the link to his post in the episode description. We hope we do not put words in his mouth by stating that his point is that for all the energy spent on how to design new ways of supporting member states, at least the euro area can already count on a fairly developed emergency response system and institutions. Outside the euro area and the EU, policy space is scarce. As Thompson writes, excluding Russia and Turkey, most of the nine non-EU emerging economies in Central and Eastern Europe have already applied for emergency assistance for a $50 billion pool available via the IMF's Rapid Financial Support Facility. To deepen our understanding of what is currently at stake in emerging markets, I have asked Irina Topaseri to join us. She is a senior economist at AXA Investment Managers, specialized in emerging markets. Hello, Irina. And uh, before we get to uh, the substance of the matter, uh, can I ask you uh, how you are dealing with uh, this uh, lockdown situation? Hello, Gilles. I'm all right, uh, working remotely as we should, staying safe at home. Thank you for asking. So what's going on in EMs? Now, emerging markets are facing massive portfolio outflows. In just one month, foreign investors pulled out of $80 billion worth of assets. This is the equivalent of all of last year's inflows into EMs. In addition, the dollar appreciation triggered significant currency weakness across EMs. Now, as the epidemics hit them, local governments engaged in emergency spending plans as well, while central banks cut interest rates massively. Even some launched more or less blunt QE programs. Now, by cutting policy rates, EM central banks chose to support domestic balance sheets against defending their currencies, well, at least for now. And as currencies continue to depreciate and investors continue to sell out of EM assets, a number of fragile emerging markets can really tip into proper balance of payments crisis. And this is exactly the moment where the IMF needs to step in. 
And uh, what are the main metrics to focus on in order to identify these fragile countries? Now, I suggest three metrics. First, the starting point, the existing short-term external financing needs. The more reliant a country is on dollar funding, the more the currency depreciation will affect its reimbursement capacity. Second, whether current account deficits rise all of a sudden, it may well be the case in a number of commodity exporters. Third, foreign reserve asset management also determines the capacity of a central bank to face imminent payments. The FX swap facilities extended by the Fed to several EM central banks help, of course, but they cannot completely cancel dollar funding issues in some countries. So uh, the $1,000 question, who are the candidates for IMF aid? Now, it should be said that on average, these vulnerability metrics are actually not bad for EMs. EM external financing requirements are not large. Their overall balance sheet does not appear stretched either. Now, EM as a group are actually net creditors over the rest of the world. That said, the disparities within this group are very wide and some countries are facing massive headwinds. Now, some of 85 countries have already filed up for emergency help with the IMF. Now, among bigger emerging and frontier markets, I would mention first Argentina. Argentina went from selling a 100-year dollar bond oversubscribed by investors in 2017 to an IMF rescue plan of $57 billion, and that was the biggest ever in the institution's history, and that in just a matter of months. Today, Argentina has to turn towards yet another IMF rescue. I would also draw your attention on South Africa, and this is a more meaningful market for investors. Now, the structural issues of SA have only been magnified by this crisis. Fiscal sustainability was being questioned for a while. The budgets are constantly drained by mandatory spending and transfers to state-owned enterprises. These fiscal issues can now morph into pressures on the balance of payments as portfolio outflows gain traction. Lastly, I would mention the recent acceleration in FX reserves depletion in Turkey, which is worrisome. Turkey is facing peak external debt repayments just now, and the traditionally supportive tourism inflows are cancelled now by the epidemic. Turkey's public debt is indeed relatively low, but its public finances have been stretched in the past two years after a currency crisis, a recession, and an aggressive credit-fueled economic rebound. With another recession this year, Turkey can yet be another candidate to IMF support. Thank you very much for your input, Irina. I guess that given the ongoing situation in emerging markets, uh, you'll be reinvited quite often to this podcast. Thank you for having invited me, Jill. I would be very delighted to come on another occasion. There. The question on moral hazard and whether the pandemic could generate a lasting burden for those countries' balance sheet arises. It's not obvious the usual conditional loans of the IMF should be the right or at least the only tool. A debate is rising on an exceptional location of special drawing rights. The last one dates to 2009 as part of the collective response to the Great Recession. Listen to uh, Kristalina Georgievia on this. She's the IMF uh, managing director. Many emerging markets find themselves hit by a health crisis, by a standstill in their own economies, and on top of it, capital outflow, capital flying to safety. Some $100 billion have left emerging markets. That makes the liquidity position of these countries uh, more challenging. And at that moment, uh, a uh, emission of SDRs can provide a much-needed liquidity boost. Special drawing rights are the closest 
to an international currency there is. They are allocated to IMF members according to their quotas, and they can convert them into hard currency, for instance, to deal with balance of payments pressure. A special allocation of special drawing rights would be a mix of money creation and mutualization between fragile and strong economies through the conversion into hard currency. Such a move is dependent on the members, and more particularly on the US, which has a veto right at the IMF. In these matters, the right, proportionate way, needs to be found between the all-out disciplinarians who would reject anything which would not be based on strong conditionality, and those who would happily drown the EMN crisis into rivers of cash without paying attention to obvious cases of ongoing macro-mismanagement. There is going to be quite a lot of interesting data releases uh, this week. And uh, in the US on Thursday, we would probably focus on uh, the Philly Fed survey. Also, housing starts, building permits. Uh, we might see actually the beginning of the impact of the lockdown on uh, those sectors. In the euro area, uh, it's going to be quite busy as well. Um, on Thursday, uh, the EFO survey for Germany uh, is going to be quite interesting in our view. Thank you very much for listening to this Macrocast. If you want to read more, you can find the Macrocast newsletter on AXA Investment Manager's website. We value your opinion, so please leave us your rates and comments on your favorite podcast applications. You'll hear about us next Monday. Have a great week. Macrocast, the sound of the economic world. Available every Monday on your podcast app. 